Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. I recently was scrolling through my Twitter feed when I saw a phenomenal picture of our beloved Reverend Mark Randall, uh, and you know he's got his Tennessee hat on, and it's with his son Keaton, uh, his teenage son Keaton, and it had the hashtag, the caption, my beloved teenage son. See, Mark was participating in a trend of fathers celebrating their teenage boys. Mr. Bradley had gotten all of this going uh, in a tweet where he asked people, what, what is the most significant thing that your father gave to you when you were a senior in high school? And as you can imagine, the responses ranged from beautiful to gut-wrenching. Wonderful stories of fathers creating special time with their sons and daughters, but also children who look back and they are missing a father. The most common reply went something like this, though. I just wish my dad had been around more. I knew he loved me and he provided for me, but what I wanted most was for him to be there. Men and women, later on in life, looking back to their childhood and longing simply for the presence of their father. The father wound, it gets talked about so often, and whether from neglect or abandonment or simply a father's absence, it lingers in the heart and lives of so many. We immortalize that struggle in our movies and in our books. You could look at Goodwill Hunting or Creed or even the childhood favorite, The Lion King, to see this father wound playing out. See, it's a relationship that's so fundamental to us that when it is missing or marred, it leads to pain, frustration, and a feeling of emptiness throughout life. Now, I don't know what what your uh, situation is when you're hearing about a father, and so maybe you can relate to that or maybe you cannot, but I do know this. In some sense, all of us can relate to this because there is a relationship so fundamental to our existence, so central to our lives as humans, that if it is harmed or broken or lost, life will never be the same. I'm speaking of a relationship with God. All of us were designed for life in relationship with our creator, a life of intimacy, fellowship, communion with him, a life in God's presence. But because of our rebellion against him, none of us have ever tasted that presence as we were intended to. 
And the beautiful news that our text speaks of this morning is that God has promised us his presence. The central relationship that every joy, delight, and good thing in this life is just a foretaste of, God has promised to restore it. He has promised to restore his presence. And I want to spend our time looking at that promise. And then looking at two implications that flow from that promise of his presence. So let's look first at the promise of God's presence that Peter points us to in our text this morning. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Stone language, a lot of your living stones, Christ's living stone. What is Peter getting at here? Well, Peter is speaking of Jesus as the living stone. And then he moves on in verse 6, and he quotes Isaiah 28 as Jesus quoted it of himself, where Jesus calls himself the cornerstone. Christ is the living cornerstone, the first big stone that is placed in a structure upon which all the other stones are laid and find their, uh, their structure. And he's saying that you and I, as living stones, are being connected to Christ, the cornerstone, and being built up into a temple. This is more than just a metaphor or an analogy. Peter is saying that with Christ as our foundation, by our union with Christ through faith, we are now the temple of God. Now to understand why that is significant, why that is beautiful, we have to briefly look at the temple in the Old Testament and uh, just bear with me for a few moments. This will be a little bit uh, more teaching, but just roll with me. In Genesis, Eden is pictured as this absolutely perfect and wonderful place. The reason being, because mankind lived in the presence of God. Perfect, complete, perpetual enjoyment of God being with man and man with God. Listen to Genesis 3.8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Imagine that that was part of your daily reality. The presence of God. Close, intimate fellowship with your creator. You've probably heard it from this pulpit countless times, but that presence is what you were created for to live every moment of our lives soaking in the presence of God, enjoying him perfectly while he enjoys us. This is what Adam and Eve enjoyed, and that's what they were called to spread. Clearly, however, that's not the reality that you and I have inherited. Something, something has broken. Something has snapped. There has been a fracture in our enjoying God's presence. You see it in the second half of the verse that I just read. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. What once brought the greatest delight now brings despair. Because of their sin, God's presence became something that man could no longer bear. And man hides from God's presence. And then God in an act of kindness, shuts him out of Eden, shuts him out of his presence because that presence has now become unbearable. 
And ever since that day, history spells out man's attempts to climb back into the presence of God or to find something in creation that can satisfy that thirst that we all have for God's presence. And barring that, we find something to numb out our gut-level longing for the presence of God. What we were created for, what all of our deepest longings and enjoyments and delights in this life point to, we cannot have. Fast forward through Israel's history and you see God beginning to move back towards man. God speaks to Noah. He speaks with Abraham and with Jacob and he enters into a covenant with them, but they don't enjoy his presence. And then you find God, after giving the Ten Commandments to Moses and the people of Israel, he commands them to build a tabernacle, a word that literally means a dwelling place for God. This traveling, tented temple where the centermost room called the Holy of Holies contained God's presence. We're told that the, the ark was like the footstool of God's throne room, his presence, his heavenly presence extending down to earth. So you see, God is beginning to restore his presence to humanity, but only in the smallest of ways. Moses, or whoever the highest-ranking priest was, would be allowed to enter into God's presence, but only once a year. This traveling temple, the tabernacle, it gets replaced when God commissions Solomon to build the temple in Jerusalem, a more permanent tabernacle, to be the place where God's people would experience the unique presence of God. But look at how far we've fallen. You've gone from Eden, unhindered, absolute, constant, and perfect access to the presence of God, to a temple. One building, with one room in it, where one priest was allowed to go in once a year to glimpse the presence of God. But then you find murmurings in the prophets of the Old Testament that God again would be with his people. Isaiah promises Emmanuel. God with us would come, and Christ is born. And Jesus claims to be the true cornerstone of the temple. He claims to be the tabernacle. He claims to be God himself. Jesus was the epitome, the fullest expression of God's presence here on earth. He was Emmanuel, God with us. And to be in his presence was to be in the presence of God. Colossians 1.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, was pleased to tabernacle. Imagine with me for a second that you were one of Christ's disciples, and you've come to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, and you love him, and you so enjoy being with him. But then he starts talking about how he has to go away. He says, I'm going to have to go away so that I can prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is saying that he has to go so that he can come again. His first coming, his incarnation, was not God, that wasn't the end goal. Jesus came so that one day we would be able to fully and finally enjoy God's presence. When all that was true of Eden would be true again, but in a more full and complete way. We will dwell with God perfectly, forever, in the new heavens and the new earth. And his presence will completely fill every inch of creation. 
And church, that is where we are headed. One day, the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll, and the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend, and the dead will be raised in glorified bodies, and we will perfectly enjoy the fullness of God's presence forever. That is glorious. But if you're like me, you're left with the question of, well, what about the in-between? I still got a long, hopefully, life to live. What about the in-between? Christ says this in John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So according to Jesus, even better than being in the physical presence of Jesus Christ on this earth would be that his Holy Spirit would dwell inside you. And that's what Peter is telling us in our text. You are now the spiritual house. You are the temple of God. Peter is saying, we are now the temple of God, and God, by his spirit, is present to us. More fully than he was in the tabernacle and in the temple, God has made his dwelling place on earth, you, us, his church. God actually dwells in us by his spirit. We are the dwelling place of God on this earth right now. That is unbelievable. We are his temple, we are his dwelling place, and we are called to two things by Peter in these verses. We've seen how God's presence has been promised to us. There's two things we're called to do. Enjoy that presence and spread that presence. Now, the promise of God's presence in the here and now, that might sound very ethereal and heady and not practical. Like you could say, hey, I, you know, I can believe that God is present to me, but I certainly don't sense his presence. And C.S. Lewis is really wise here. He says that God's presence is not the same as the feeling of God's presence. Meaning that God is present to us by his Holy Spirit, whether we sense him or not. It's kind of like gravity. Like gravity exists right now, whether you're presently aware of it or not. But there are certain things that you could do that would fix your attention on gravity, and then you would be experiencing gravity in a different way. If the weather wasn't so terrible, we could go to the Red River Gorge and we'd go climbing and you could be 70 feet up on a a rock face and you could look down and gravity, which is always there, would suddenly be acting upon you. You would be experiencing it in quite a different way. And similarly, God has given us means of experiencing his presence. Verse 3, it speaks of tasting of the Lord's goodness. Verse 4, it speaks of an active coming to him. This is the language of experience. If this makes you uncomfortable, this is what Paul speaks of in Ephesians 3. In fact, he prays it for, for us. He prays that you would grasp the love of Christ to know the love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is nothing less than a prayer that we would experience the presence of God's Spirit, that we, his temple, have been given. Well, how does this happen? 
To know that, we need to know what, what the Spirit does. What does God's Spirit do? Very simply, God's Spirit is only ever showing off Christ. That's what he does. You see these, uh, these great stained glass windows up here? Well, there's a light behind them. And that light, maybe it's a bunch of lights, I don't know, but those lights, they're not trying to get you to think about them, right? They're not drawing attention to the lights themselves. They, those lights exist to show those stained glass windows off. That's what the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit, he acts as a floodlight to shine his light upon the face and the person of Christ so clearly that Christ is all we can see. The Spirit works to make the truth about Jesus shine, to show you Christ's glory, to grip you. So the Spirit dwells within us to make Christ big and make him beautiful to us for our hearts and our minds and our affections to be captured by him. And as we are captured by the beauty of Christ, we are experiencing the presence of God's Spirit. And where do we primarily see Christ? Verse 2, we grow up into salvation by drinking of the pure spiritual milk like newborn infants. I have a newborn infant, kind of. He's eight months now and he looks like he's 17. But he's in a constant rhythm of longing, for milk, and being fed. And he's growing up. And this language of pure spiritual milk, it's, it's speaking of God's word. In the scriptures, God is directly communicating to us. The scriptures, they're not just, you know, this isn't just a bunch of information about God given to you so that you can think about God. This is actually God's way of communicating to us right now. And what's this all about? This is, this is speaking of Christ. In the scriptures, God is directly communicating to you the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and what he has done to lead you to worship, to lead you to love him. And the spirit, as Romans 8 says, is bearing witness with our spirit that who Christ is is beautiful. And when that floodlight illuminates our hearts, when the word of God grips our attention, we are experiencing the presence of the spirit who actually dwells within you now. The Puritan preacher and theologian Thomas Goodwin, he tells the story of he's walking along behind a father and a son, and he, he, he's watching them, and the father leans over, grabs the boy, picks him up, wraps him in his arms in an embrace, and says, I love you. And the son returns the hug and says, I love you. And then the father puts the son back down, and they continue on walking. Was that boy... When he was in his father's arms, was he any more a son than when he was walking beside the father? And Goodwin says, well, no, you can't be more of a son. But he was experiencing his sonship. He was experiencing the father's love when he was in his arms. And this is what it is like to experience the presence of the Spirit. You're not getting more of God's presence. You're just experiencing the presence that he has already given to you as he makes Christ beautiful to us. And you and I have an active role in this to play. We live in what the psychologist and economist uh, Herbert Simon calls the attention economy, where now uh, every moment of your day can be monetized if someone just can capture your attention. 
And so millions of symbols and data points are coming at you throughout the day trying to capture your attention. And we're so accustomed to it that we don't even realize that that's what's going on. One thinker says, if the churches came to understand that the greatest threat to faith today was not hedonism, but distraction, perhaps they would begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. A fragile, frazzled digital generation. That is us. What if what is preventing us from delighting in God's presence to us by his spirit, what if what is pre- preventing that is not a lack of his presence, but a heart that is distracted? How do we fix that? How do we remedy this? I feel at times totally inadequate in remedying the, the fixation of my attention on all sorts of other things. Well, again, the Puritans are wonderful on this, and they talk about a lot uh, contemplation, which is simply just putting yourself in the means that God has given you to make Christ big and beautiful to you. And where does he do that? Right here, in corporate worship, where God's word is expounded, and you partake of the sacraments, and God is making his son beautiful to us by his Holy Spirit. In discussing God's word in your parish groups and praying with one another, and in to find new ways to be constantly meditating and contemplating on Christ throughout our days. All of this done, not as duty, but simply as a way of enjoying the Spirit's presence that is within you. But it doesn't end there. We aren't just called to enjoy the presence of God, we're called to spread it. Let's look at this second implication. Friday, as I sat in my office, which is right back there, I've got this window that it looks out on the parking lot because that's where they put the JV staff. And I'm looking at the parking lot and it's covered in snow and ice and there's a couple snow plows that show up and a bunch of guys have shovels and salt. And they did a remarkable job clearing that parking lot. You guys are, for the most part, safely in here this morning. Um, They did a good job. We could enlist every snowplow and shovel in central Kentucky to go work on that parking lot, and there's still going to be ice and snow remaining throughout it. You know what's going to erase the snow and the ice? The sun rising, bringing its light and its warmth to bear on that parking lot. Man-made efforts simply cannot compete with the power of the sun. As we have seen, we are God's temple. We are his dwelling place in this world, and that is why you are God's plan for fixing the brokenness and the darkness of this world. Not because we are so excellent and so obedient, but because he's present in us and he's expanding his presence throughout the world through your life, whether you realize it or not. That is why no political power, no theory of social change, no corporate practices, no methods of efficiency will ever compete with the power of God's presence through his people. And so as the sun rises and brings its warmth and its light onto this parking lot, God's presence is growing and expanding through our lives, even now, in the darkness of this world. Verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our role as God's temple, his dwelling place on this earth, is to enjoy 
that presence, and then to bring that presence by your conduct, by your speech, into the darkness and decay of the world around us. And as we do this, the Lord's presence extends. His temple is built. As our neighbors and our friends taste of God's presence through our lives, more and more are drawn to the creator, united to the cornerstone of Christ, and made living stones, building a glorious temple of God's dwelling on this earth. So that's why Peter tells you to put away malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Instead, proclaim the excellencies of your creator. What remarkable significance this gives to mundane life. When you go to the grocery store, the way that you interact with the teller is not just a demonstration of Christ-likeness. It's not just Christ-like behavior. You are actually bringing the presence of God to bear in that place. When you are around the water cooler this week at work, when you choose to engage someone as a real human being made in the image of God, deserving your genuine curiosity, you are bringing the presence of God to bear in that place. When you do your work with diligence and excellence, you are bringing God's presence into the world. And when you get the opportunity to share the good news of God's salvation, you're not just giving some cosmic sales pitch of salvation. You are bringing the presence of God to bear in that place. We are a people with a gut-level longing for the presence of our God, and it is lodged so deep within the recesses of your souls. And the beautiful news is that he has promised to restore you to that presence, and he is even building that into you now. We have seen his presence now. We really do. Like, church, God's spirit actually dwells inside you right now. I don't know why that struck me so powerfully this week, but the spirit of God himself dwells in you even now. It's us that are the problem. We, we just, we don't know how to fully enjoy his presence right now. The problem is we're still broken vessels. We can't hold, we can't grasp, we can't fully contain his presence now. But there will come a day when we are raised in glorified bodies and we will be able to hold, to grasp, to fully enjoy our God's presence forever. But until that day, enjoy his presence and spread his presence by owning your identity as his temple, as his dwelling place in this earth. Now, I know I, I need to wrap this up, but we, we simply can't close without looking at how that promise of presence was guaranteed. In Matthew 27, 46, we find the answer. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabatani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The incarnate Son of God, hanging upon a wooden cross with the weight of all of your sin, the thing that broke and fractured your ability to enjoy your God's presence, all of that hanging on his shoulders, heavier than the weight of the world. And he is forsaken by his Father. The Father turns his face away. The only one who ever rightfully and fully deserved the presence of God was cut off from it. Abandoned so that you and I might be brought near, brought into the presence of God, both in this life and that which is to come. And if this is not your faith, come and meet. Come and meet your Father who loves you. 
Be united to his son and enjoy the presence of your God in this life and that which is to come. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word and for your promises. Would you pour out your grace on us and give us the faith to believe that they are true? Lord, by your spirit, confirm that those promises are true of us and make Christ Jesus, your son, big and beautiful to us even this day. All this we ask in your name. Amen.